Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. experience or what you're feeling this morning, but things will get better. I think Psalm 30 verse 5 sums it up for us all. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. And so when we get to Psalm 4, it lets us know that we can have confidence during the night while we're waiting, but we don't just wait up. We can go to sleep peacefully. Psalm 4, verses 1 through 8, says this. Answer me when I call. God who vindicates me, or your Bible may say, God who is my righteousness, you freed me from affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? That's a good question. How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Here's what it says. You may have heard this before. Be angry and do not sin. Reflect in your heart while you're on your bed and be silent. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who who can show us anything good? And here's what he says. Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine, new wine, abound. Here's what he says in verse 8. I will both lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, Lord. Make me live in safety. Let us pray. Father, We thank you for just this opportunity to worship you and serve you this morning. Father, we just thank you for visiting with us this morning. We thank you for your tangible presence, God. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather, Lord. You don't owe this to us, but this is something that we get to do. And so we, we, we appreciate you, Lord. We pray today that your son Jesus would be made known, that we would see him in a new way, in a new light, God, that we would open our hearts, God, to just be impacted, to be transformed, to be changed, God. And so, Father, I just pray that you would give us the grace to to not only hear but to listen, and then, God, give us the grace to obey. God, give us a greater trust for you today, God. Give us a greater love for you, Lord. Let let our lives pursue a relationship with you, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you. We give you glory. We give you honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and the people of God said amen. You may be seated. My sermon title this morning is... A psalm of rest. A psalm of rest. I want to say this to you this morning. Most of us are more familiar with Psalm 4 than we realize. Many many would agree that Psalm 4 is not the most known psalm. But I will tell you this. Historically, it may be one of the most culturally influential psalms in the entirety of the Psalter. You, you, you read this and you were like, I don't, I don't think I've heard this quoted too, too, too often. I'm, I'm not too familiar with this psalm in particular. I'm maybe familiar with Psalm 91. I'm, I'm familiar with Psalm 100. I'm familiar with Psalm 23. I'm, I'm 
familiar with Psalm 1, but Psalm 4 is kind of like one of those that you kind of just skate by. But, but you're more familiar with it than you think you are. If, if I said the name Joseph Addison to you, it probably would not ring a bell or mean anything to you. But in 1711, centuries ago, this English author, Joseph Addison, wrote an essay for his daily magazine called The Spectator. And in The Spectator, he wrote a poem, a prayer poem of sorts, that would later be edited by someone else a few years later and put into a rhyme. And so here's why I say that you are more familiar with Psalm 4 than you think you are. You actually know Psalm 4. At least you know the sentiment of Psalm 4 by heart. Because if you were a child and you grew up in a Christian home, or maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home, whether you went to church or did not go to church, you may remember that this is the first prayer you ever memorized, and it derives from Psalm 4, and it goes a little something like this, and you can hang in there with me when you, when you get it in your spirit. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I told you you knew Psalm 4. <laughs> this nursery rhyme prayer has been repeated millions of times by parents and children's, the children before bedtime. The point of the prayer is to have confidence that God would take care of them while they sleep at night. The consensus is that this uh, most known children's prayer was directly or indirectly influenced by Psalm 4. If you look in your Bible, depending on what version you have, Psalm 4 is listed as a evening prayer, meaning that it is beneficial to pray and meditate on this particular psalm at night before you go to bed. Some would say that this psalm is actually a lament about what is happening to the psalmist, but others believe that this is actually a psalm of confidence, confidence in God, that is, and I tend to agree that this is a psalm of confidence. Well, more context would help you. So, psalm 4 is a psalm of King David, who was considered the greatest king of Israel. And, and we don't know, if I'm being honest and put my cards on the table, throughout all the research and the scholars, we don't know the specific circumstances that brought about Psalm 4. But King David was a man of honor, but during this particular period of his life, when he penned this particular psalm, David felt like a man of disgrace. Some scholars actually believe that this psalm is a result of David's conflict with his son Absalom, who turned on his father, who turned on his father and rebelled against his father's leadership and attempted to take the kingdom from his father David. The scripture tells us that Absalom, the son of David, actually stole the hearts of the people from his father. And so in this particular context, the influential people of Israel, the wealthy people, the leaders in Israel have switched sides and now they are not rocking with David, but instead they're following his son Absalom. The same people that David once led and served have now turned on him. Well, that's one, one scenario that scholars believe. The other scholars believe that there's a famine in the land and food is in short supply and the prices for food are through the roof or, or Maybe the gas prices on a camel are $75 a gallon. $75 to fill up your, your Mitsubishi. Well, whatever the case, in the context, I'll say it like a prophet from the Bronx, New York once said, yesterday's price is not today's price. 
And I tend to land on this particular historical context simply because in verse 7, David refers to grain and and wine in this particular psalm. Or maybe it's not one or the other. Maybe it's both. Maybe David is dealing with a family issue and dealing with an external issue. Ain't that how life is? You have drama with your family and you have drama outside of your family. You got drama with your cousin and mama and grandma and them. And you got drama with your coworkers at the same time. And so it shouldn't be strange to us to find that David is in a situation where he's struggling within and he's struggling without and he can't do anything about neither of the situations. And this is the context. And so although we don't know the actual situation, we do know that it was a time of turmoil and frustration in David's life. Whatever the case, the central problem for David is that David is overwhelmed. And maybe today you came here and you feel overwhelmed by life. Maybe you got a lot going on. Maybe there's a lot going on in in your life and you feel overwhelmed. You're overwhelmed with work, overwhelmed with your finances, overwhelmed with your kids, overwhelmed with your family, overwhelmed with church, overwhelmed with ministry, overwhelmed with money, overwhelmed with everything that's going on around us. But whether it's a drought in the land or the people have lost confidence in David's leadership, we know that in this particular context, David is helpless. And maybe you felt helpless before in your life. I know I have. We all have times where we feel helpless and there's nothing we can do about our particular situation. There's nothing any other human can do to help David in this context. David is the king and he can't change his situation because David is king, but David can't change the weather. He can't make it go from a drought to prosperity. David can't, even though he's a king as a leader, he can't make people like him. There's nothing that David can do about the situation. These are circumstances beyond David's control, but we can learn something significant from David's response to being overwhelmed. And that is regardless of what what is going on in his life, David has confidence in the Lord. He knows that the Lord will not abandon him in his distress. This confidence that David has, this trust that he has, has given David an inward peace and that is the thing about Christianity if you're not a follower of Jesus or if you don't have a deep relationship with him you won't understand this but there are there's something with, with about our faith that if you are walking with Jesus if that that if you are filled with the Holy Spirit everything in your life can be going crazy it can be going haywire and for some reason you have just this internal peace going on on the inside of you life out of control Life noisy, but there's a quiet in your spirit because you have confidence in God that he's going to work everything out. And and this is what David is demonstrating. This, This confidence has given him an inward peace. And the evidence of that confidence in God is something that is going to knock your socks off. There is evidence that he has confidence in God. And the evidence is this. He goes to bed at night. David can get a full night's rest with everything going on around him. For for, for the Christian, you may not know this, but to rest well is a spiritual statement. To go to bed is a spiritual statement. It is a proclamation of your faith when you can just go to sleep. The the statement is that no, no matter what is happening in my life, no matter how bad it may seem, I can confidently go to sleep knowing that God is going to take care of me. And this is what is happening in the text. And this is important for us, important for our generation. A recent study found that only one third of Americans report getting a quality night of sleep. 
only one third. Meaning that these people got seven to nine hours of uninterrupted sleep at night. Now, this is people who are actually trying to go to bed. This is not people who are staying up to the midnight hour and then get to work late, said I'm sleepy. This is not that. This is, these are people who are actually trying to get some rest, but they can't get rest because they're restless. And if only a third of Americans report getting a quality and adequate night of, night of rest, that, that means about 84 million people are tossing and turning at night. 84 million, of people, 84 million people can't get any rest. And for most, stress has brought about the restlessness. Stress has brought about the restlessness. And, and, and there are many things that can contribute to this. The effects of the pandemic. It, people, I, I'm convinced that, that the pandemic just made people crazy. I, I just, you just can't escape crazy these days. Crazy is everywhere you go. Crazy is at the grocery store. Crazy is at work. Crazy is at the mall. Crazy at the gas station. Craziness might even be in your house. But whatever there are effects of the pandemic, there's a war going on in, in, in the world every time you turn on the news. There, there's a war going on. We don't, we don't know what's going on with that. There, there's, there's this new thing that you didn't know. You'll get an economics course now every time you turn on TV with this thing called inflation. Food to buy an apple is $8. To fill up a, a, a Toyota Corolla is 96 bucks. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. It's causing anxiety. No wonder you can't go to sleep. You got to make a lifetime decision whether you can drive to the grocery store or not. How far do you live? Oh, no, I can't. I got to wait till Friday. I don't get, don't get paid until Friday. I can't, can't risk it. To come see you would be a risk. I'm just saying what you feel inside, but you're afraid to say to other people. Let's work this out together. There's effects of the pandemic. There's a war going on. There's inflation. And then there's celebrity anxiety. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. There's just seeing stuff you're like, I'm, I, my nerves are bad now. I don't, I'm not even talking. I'm not, nope. But even all of that, for the Christian, we can rest securely. It is, it, let me say this, it is possible, it is possible for you who can't seem to get rest and who, who, for, who, for you who sleep, sleep seems to be elusive, it is possible because of God that you can go to bed tonight. It is possible that, that you can actually lay your head on the pillow and wake up tomorrow. And so we'll see in this text that the psalmist gives us some keys that will help us rest securely. And the first thing that we'll see in the text is that the psalmist is not complaining about his situation. He's not complaining, but he's calling. He's not complaining, but he's calling. He's not complaining, but he's calling out to God. And this is the first thing that we see in the text. If we are going to rest securely, we must not complain. We must call out to God. And we see this in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Answer me when I call God. 
who vindicates me. You freed me from affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And what you see the psalm is doing is that although he is concerned, he's not complaining to people. He takes his problems directly to God. And this is the first thing that we must do in every situation. We must pray. We, we must pray. Pray, And although he is king of Israel, he's going through the same situation that everybody else is going through. But he calls out boldly to God. And there are two things I want you to notice about David's prayer here. And the first thing is that when he prays in order for God to respond, he appeals to the character of God. This is important. You need to know this. Write it down. Put it in your phone. I don't care what you do. Know this, that first, the first thing that David does in his prayer is he appeals to the character of God. Here's what he said. God who vindicates me, or in your Bible, maybe God who is my righteousness. David can call out to God because he knows that there is nothing inherently righteous about him, but there is everything that is right about God. David knows that he doesn't deserve for God to answer his prayer. David wouldn't dare think that. David is the same guy who later in Psalm 51 said that I was born born in sin and shaped in iniquity. David knows he's a sinner. He knows that there's nothing inherently good about him, but he knows that there's everything good about God, so he don't appeal to his own righteousness. He says, God, I'm appealing to you based on your righteousness. And for us as Christians, this is good for us because we are seen as righteous. How are we seen as righteous? You've heard this before. We are righteous not because of our own good works, but we are righteous because of Christ Jesus. Psalm uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 he that knew no sin became sin so that we what might become righteous and so we appeal to God we are appealing to his righteousness knowing that there is nothing about us that should move God but God will move because it's everything right with him so when you go to God God I'm coming to you not because I deserve for you to answer my prayer but God I know that you are a good God I know that you are righteous. I know that I'm your son. And just like a good father, notice I didn't say a regular old father, but like a good father, you will do whatever it takes to take care of your kids and to answer and respond to whatever their request is. He knows that God is committed to him like a good father is committed to his children. So he appeals to the character of God. The second thing David does is he appeals to the previous work of God. This was not the first time David found himself in a situation he couldn't do nothing about this is not the first time and if you are alive today and you've been alive more than five minutes you realize that this ain't the first situation you've been in either but the good news for us is is that we can look back to previous seasons where we felt like God I'm in a I'm in a bind I can't get out of this this has got me messed up I don't have the answers I don't have the money I don't know the people I don't have the network I don't have the hookup it's not because of my family I don't know anything but I don't have I don't have what I need but God you got to do something on my behalf and some of us are sitting here today free as we can be because of what God did for us in the past and so sometimes we have spiritual amnesia and we get in desperation because we forget to remember what God did in the past. But David ain't forgetting. David's like, God, I knew you worked some stuff out for me before. So, God, if you did it before, you would do it again. There's nothing different about the God that worked it out in your past about God that can work it out now. And so this is what David is appealing to. And David says, God, you, before, you freed me from my affliction. That phrase literally paints the picture that, God, that David was in a tight space and God gave him room. 
Have you ever been in a tight situation in a bind and God came through for you in the clutch? And you was like, whoo, thank you, G. This is what David is saying. Lord, you made me breathe before God. Make me breathe again. So he appeals to the character of God and he appeals to the previous work of God. And so prayer is when we cast ourselves on the mercy of God. Merciful is who God actually is. And so the first thing that we see is that David calls out to God. The second thing we'll see is that he reconciles conflict. He reconciles conflict. How, how can I go to bed? Number one, call out to God. Number two, you need to reconcile whatever conflict you have before you go to bed. This is good practical advice. Verses 2 through 5 says this. How long, exalted ones, will, you, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry. Do not sin. Reflect in your heart when you're on your bed. Be silent. Then he says, offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust the Lord. And so I told you at the outset that the influential, prominent people in Israel had turned their back on David. And so David doesn't just let there be issues out floating in the air. David does his best to reconcile the conflict with the people who've turned his back on him. And he addresses these men when he says, uh, when, when he says to them, exalted ones. This is who he's talking about. He's talking about the landowners, the wealthy, the powerful in Israel, and they are undermining his reputation. They're talking bad about him because they want the leader to be able to do something about the situation, but the leader can't do anything. And so the people are turning on the leader. That's what happens with leadership. I'm looking today, the president's poll numbers are the lowest they've ever been because whenever you're in a position of leadership and you don't do what the people need you to do sometimes, sometimes the people will turn on you. That's the price of leadership, and David is dealing with this. There's nothing, you can, there's, nothing, there's nothing you can do about it, and David is dealing with that in this context. They scoffed at his position in Israel. They undermined his authority. They insulted David's honor, but I think this ain't just about David. This points forward to Jesus. When Jesus came, the religious, religious leaders of Israel at that time did not welcome Jesus. They did not honor Jesus, but instead they mocked Jesus and eventually killed Jesus. They, they killed him, and I think David is, is speaking, of course, in a real situation, but we know for sure that he's speaking for God in Christ and specifically because the, the Psalms points to Jesus. But they not only turn to, from David because David is their God-appointed leader. They're not just turning away from David. They're essentially turning away from God. People are so frustrated at the situation, they're now saying, we got to try something else. God thing ain't working. Whatever the pagans are doing, whatever the unbelievers are doing right now, they seem to be winning. So let's try it their way. This Jesus thing don't seem to be really working out. And because of the uncomfortable and unpleasant situation they found themselves in, they were willing to throw anything at the wall to see what would stick. Be careful when you're so desperate that you're willing to offend God to get relief. Some of us, when it gets too tight, when it, when, it, when it gets hard, we've all been there. You resort to anything to get from up under the pressure. You resort to anything to get from under the pain, just to either, either to numb you or to distract you. 
But be careful when, when that which gives you relief calls you to offend God. So here's what David says to that. How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? That's a, good, that's a good question to ask. How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? He says this, how long are you going to keep serving that which cannot help you? How, how long will you love that which has no ability to help you but can only do harm to you? How long will you love that thing that keeps destroying you? Are you not tired yet? Have you not, ha- have you not said enough is enough? How long will you keep running back? How long will you keep dabbling? How long will you love what you were never made to love in the first place? What they didn't realize is that it's true. And it's true for us too. We were made to love. We, we were, it's natural to want to love something in somebody. Let me, let me free you. It's, not, it's, it's good. You, are, you were made to love. But you were not made to love anything that didn't have God at the end point. That love that you have a desire to express to someone or something it's actually supposed to, you're supposed to love it only if the end goal glorifies God. Only if the end goal glorifies God. You were made to love, but God is the end goal of your love. Author James K.A. Smith wrote in the book, You Are What You Love. And, and I know y'all are like, oh my God, here he is with another book reference. Hey, listen, readers are leaders. But here's what he says in the book, You Are What You Love. Great book about that. Since our hearts are made to find their end in God, we will experience a besetting anxiety and restlessness when we try to love substitutes. To be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. I love that. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will love as ultimate. And what you will love and should love is God. What they were worshiping and seeking love from was a lie because it convinced them that if they got that thing, that it would bring relief and satisfaction. But what they really needed was more of God, not more of stuff. Because God is the only thing that can satisfy the longing in your soul. When When you long for something, even when we long for good things, we long for, for good food, fine cuisine, and fine dining. I love, I got a problem. <laughs> love restaurants. Something's wrong with me. When you long for a spouse or, 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 or a loved one in a, in a, in a godly context, That longing is a reminder that what you're really longing for is God. What that that feeling is doing is pointing you to something. And that thing which it is pointing you to is it's pointing you to God. But if the thing you long for and the thing that satisfies you temporarily ends up destroying you, all you've done is place a substitute in the place of God. You know what that's called? That's called idolatry. And some of us have made idols out of good things. Because when you make good things, ultimate things, you make good things an idol. And they were never meant to be an idol. 
And this is what is happening. And David is called when he says, how long will you do this? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lot? He's calling them back to God. Hey, okay, enough of that. You see, it's not working out for you. All right, turn back to God. Notice Notice at the end of verse 2, look in your Bible. If you look there, if you notice after verse 2, there's a break. It says Selah. That's not there for no reason. If you look in your Bible right now, it says that's there on purpose. That means that there's a break there. It's typically like a mark, an instrumentation, right? It means something, but it really means ponder what I just said. How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Ask yourself the question before you go another further. Everything in the Bible is there on purpose. And here's what David says. God has set me apart for himself. You guys can be mad at me. You guys can turn on me. But you know that I didn't choose God. God chose me. If you know David's story, David wasn't trying to be the king. David wasn't even the human first choice. They wanted some of David's brothers. David was out minding his business, doing his job. They came and found, no, that dude is the one. His father didn't even think he was the one. God chose David. David didn't choose God. And so for them to turn on David was to turn on God. God had made a covenant with David. He told David, he told Samuel in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 15 that, that I will have a covenant with him. He will be my son. I'll be with him for his kingdom will be established forever. God has a committed covenant with David. He will not turn his back on David. And since he has a covenant with David, when David calls, he will answer. And so the people not only need to trust David, they need to trust the God of David because the God of David won't turn his back on David. That is the same thing for us who are in the covenant relationship with Jesus if we are united to Jesus do you know that Jesus is interceding on your behalf that that you don't have a reason to give up on God because Jesus is praying for you and if Jesus is praying for you Jesus is praying a better prayer about your situation than you could ever pray and you should have confidence in this and this is what he's trying to do to them he's trying to give them advice turn to God seek him seek God turn away from sin deal with with your issues. And here's what he says. Be angry and don't sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. You've heard this before because the Apostle Paul quotes this in Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul said in Ephesians 4 verses 26 to 27, you remember this. He says, be angry and do not sin. Here's what Paul says. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. And here's what he's saying. Take a look in the mirror first. But he says, do not sin. Let me give you some freedom. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to be hurt. It's okay to be disappointed. It's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to be tired. It's okay to be angry. There are times when you're angry. It's actually good. That there's a righteous type of anger when we see evil in the world or we experience evil or we experience sin. You have a right to be mad at it. You should be mad at it. When we see unjust uh, injustices happening in the world, we should be mad. We see a war and people being bombed and they're bombing children's hospitals and old folks' homes. That should do something to our heart. That should create an anger. And that is a righteous anger that we have. The problem is that type of stuff don't bother us, but we rejoice over the crazy type of sin. We rejoice over what we should be mad about. And so the key to whether your anger is good or not is to ask, am I angry about what God is angry about? 
Because if not, my anger ain't justified. But it is not, it is okay to be angry, but it's not okay to sin when you're angry. Do you know that responding out of anger has led many well-meaning, well-intended, talented, amazing, and intelligent people to places that they did not intend to go? Jails are filled with people who had all the world of potential, but in one moment of anger, threw it all away. One wrong move, and it can be the thing that turns a life full of potential into a life full of pain. There's a righteous anger. Remember, Jesus got angry. Remember, Jesus got angry. They were in the temple, and they, he turned over the tables of the money exchanges, exchanges because they were charging people these uh, crazy rates to exchange their money. And he said, my, you've turned my, the, my father's house into a den of thieves. It should have been a house of prayer. Jesus had a, had a righteous anger, but we also know that this same Jesus, like, oh, yeah, I'm about to turn over some stuff. Nope. This same Jesus, remember, when, in 1 Peter, he's referred to it. It says when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And so as one commentator said, this is why we have to deal with our issues. One commentator said strong emotions are not easily turned in the opposite direction. Once you let it fester and boil it's hard for you to go in the other direction. This is why we got to deal with our issues. Re- remember, Paul just said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. But the psalmist says, on your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. And if we make a simple observation of Psalm 4 and Ephesians 4, both seem to suggest that we should deal with what we feel rather than quickly, rather quickly before what we feel deals with us. Deal with what you feel before what you feel deals with you. Because it will deal with you. Both seem to give the idea that before you go to bed, deal with what goes on in your heart. He says, reflect in your heart, ponder it, and be still. Let, let me say this. Be still is not the equivalent of social media binge for two hours to get your mind off things. You try to find solace and peace in the very thing that gives you the most anxiety. You know it resides on social media when you're trying to be still. Jealousy's there. Conflict's there. Annoyance is there. It's a cesspool of humanity, and all it does is exacerbates the worst that's already in us. So when he says be still, I assume he would mean rather than just strolling your phone for two hours to get your mind off of things, I think he means turn your phone off, turn it on silent, put it in another room, turn the face down, and sit with God. Your anxiety is through the roof because you spend all your time in Anxietyville, USA. And here's what he says. Take inventory of what's going on with you emotionally. Emotionally, Give honest reflection. And sometimes you'll find out maybe what you're mad about ain't really that serious. Or, or, I don't mean to offend you, or maybe what you're mad about is your fault. Maybe after reflecting for a while, you'll come to one or two conclusions. Either I need to forgive or I need to repent. Those are the two options. And we must deal with our anger 
Because if we allow it to last too long, those emotions can get perverted into feelings of malice. And instead of a longing to see things made right or dealing with a person to see them repent, we don't want to give into the root of bitterness, which is why Paul says, don't give the devil an opportunity. He means that literally. Don't give Satan an opportunity in your anger. We see what happens when you don't deal with your stuff. Oh, but but you don't know the context because, see, four years ago, because what had happened was and what was said was, see, you don't know what a person is dealing with. You don't know what they're going through. And I love what one commentator says. Just because something is explainable doesn't make it justifiable. But I'm just offended in my heart, so I'm going to walk up on the stage while the preacher is preaching, and I'm not going to make it up there because he's going to jump down before I get up there. <laughs> You interpret those cultural tongues however you want to interpret those cultural tongues. He says, do not be angry, do not sin, be silent. Notice again at the end of verse 4, it says, Selah. There's a break. Ponder this. I have a question. When's the last time you sat in silence? When's the last time that you were actually awake, you turned off your phone? I mean, power it down. Not for an update. <laughs> Not for an update. I know my church. You power it down not for an update to your phone, but for an update from God for you. When was the last time you turned your phone off and sat and asked the Lord to come sit with me? Some of you are afraid to sit in silence because you don't want to deal with the one person that you're afraid to deal with. You. But this is an invitation, a call to action. Don't just ponder, say, you know what, I could have did something different. But it is to say, okay, now that I know what the deal is, whether I need to forgive or repent, what can I do? And the psalmist says, offer sacrifices in righteousness, meaning that I need to take action that comes from a pure heart. Offer sacrifices. Remember back in those days, the sacrificial system, people bring lambs and bulls and goats and offer sacrifice. But here's the thing about a sacrifice. God never wanted to sacrifice no matter what. What kind of animal you brought him if it didn't come from your heart? And God is saying to them, do something from your heart. Love people from your heart. Love me from your heart. Serve me from your heart. Let me do the right thing and let me deal with the outcome. And so David addresses the people, but then David comes back to God. David looks to God in verse 6. He says, many are asking, who can show us anything good? And he says something, let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. People are asking, where do we look to for help? What, what God can accommodate us? Who, who, people were ready to sell their souls to get from up out of their situation. And David's response is beautiful. David's essentially saying, don't look to me and don't look to some other God. Look to the one living true God. Look to him when you get in trouble. 
And so David does something interesting. Even though they've turned on him, David offers a prayer, not just for himself, but he offers a prayer for those who've turned against him. Remember what Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And David asked the Lord, let your light, let the light of your face shine on us. And this is Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. And here's what that says. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. And David is asking God to bless the people. God, God, David knew what it was like to be in the dumps and lose what was important to him. David knew what it was like to experience shame and guilt. David knew what it was like to be betrayed by family and friends. David knew what it was like to be a victim of his own wrongdoing. David knew what it was like to have jumped out the window and make a crazy decision with Bathsheba. But this same David asked for one thing when he found himself at his lowest he did not ask for the Lord to give him back money the kingdom or relationship or any material thing David asked for God to give him God when David gets to Psalm 51 after his excursion with Bathsheba and he prays his prayer of repentance he says Lord do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me and in verse 12 of Psalm 51 David says restore to me the joy of your salvation David knows that joy only comes from one place and that one place is God and can I say to you that the joy that you're looking for the peace that you're looking for comes from only one place and that is in Jesus. Jesus is the source of our joy. That's the one thing that can bring us the most joy. The thing that can bring us the most joy is something that we already have. We already have it. It is already in your possession. God is the source of our joy. If we wake up tomorrow and we were exactly where we truly wanted to be and if we had everything we actually desire and we were with whoever we desired to be with it still wouldn't give you what you're looking for those experience of goodness in this world are only appetizers meant to make us hungry and prepare us for the main course Here's the good news. God satisfies us. God doesn't just give us stuff. God gives us himself. And some of us are looking way too low. And we're looking for things that will never suffice. Only what God can give us. If you have anxiety, if you can't sleep at night, there's only one place that that's going to come from. It's going to come from God. It's coming from a pursuit of him. When you're in a relationship with him, he gives you something that nobody else can give you. And here's what happens as a result of the joy. He says, you put more joy in my heart than they have when their new grain and their grain and new wine abound. How I long for this to be all of our testimony, that God puts more joy in our heart than anything else could. The problem with us is that we think lower things can satisfy us. And how I wish that was our testimony, that God could. And here's what he says in verse 8, and I'm done. He says, I will both lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. David was not concerned about the outcome. He was concerned, but he wasn't anxious. Let me say that again. He was concerned, 
but he wasn't anxious. He, he has an inner contentment. It's noisy outside, but his heart is as quiet as a church mouse. Now, David says he's about to turn his phone on silent, and y'all can talk about whatever you want to talk about. You can tweet whatever you want to tweet. You can repost whatever you want to repost. You can turn on me if you want. You can leave me on red. I don't care what you do. I'm about to go to bed. The greatest statement of faith you could ever make is just to go to bed at night. Just go, go, go to sleep. And here's the thing. The only problem I got with David turning turn in for tonight is that he don't tell us anything about God fixing the problem. There's no testimony in Psalm 4 that the drought is over. There's no testimony in Psalm 4 that all the people who turned on him turned back to him. There's no testimony about that in the Psalms. I have a problem with this, that there's no solution there. God doesn't fix the problem, but God fixes David. And this is what God is doing for us. It is possible not to be restless. It is possible to turn your phone off at night and go to bed. He was so confident in God that it gave him the audacity to go to sleep without having to figure everything out. Let me say that again. He had so much confidence. He had the audacity to go to sleep at night and not have his life figured out. He didn't have to have all of the, he didn't have to know when. He just went to bed. He had the unmitigated gall to know that even if things don't change, God's got it under control. And every time we go to bed, we humbly admit again that the world will be fine without us. The world will be all right until you wake up in the morning. But this, this plea of, of, of us to get rest reminds me of something else, not just King David. And I'm done. There's another king who also had to deal with unbelief of the nation's leadership, except they didn't just insult his honor with words. When they rebelled against his leadership, they took it as far as nailing him to the cross. And while being nailed to the cross, that same king also interceded and prayed for those who were to, about to try to force him into a permanent sleep. And sleep he did. He laid himself down in sleep of death, not willingly to go to sleep, but he did it because he did it for you and I. Why would he go to sleep willingly? Because he had the confidence that his father was going to raise him out of that grave and raise him up. He did, but he didn't just raise him. He raised everyone that would put their faith in the work of his son. And if you don't know that son's name, his name is Jesus. You can go to sleep because even Jesus, after he went to sleep, his father raised him up after three days. And when he raised him to life, you know what else? All things were made right. Your sins were forgiven. You had eternal life. You had love. You had peace. You had joy. So because of Jesus and his finished work on the cross, you too can go to sleep. You can go to sleep, and I'm, I'm done. There's a story in Mark's gospel where Jesus and the disciples are on the boat, and the winds and the seas are going crazy. And the disciples don't know what to do. They're about to lose their mind because they don't want to drown. And guess what Jesus is doing? Sleep. If you look up unbothered in the dictionary, it will have a picture of Jesus sleeping at the bottom of the boat. And when they woke Jesus up, Jesus was like, what, what is wrong with y'all? 
what's wrong with you? Why are you afraid? He says this, do you not have faith? For y'all not to be able to sleep in the midst of this storm must mean you don't know who I am. But every time we stay up and wrestle and think and think and think and think and worry and worry and worry and long and long we forget who God is. But the, one of the greatest declarations of faith you can make is to go to sleep at night. So as we turn towards the Easter season, let us remember that we can have confidence in God regardless of what's going on. We know that everything is going to be all right. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let's get some rest. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.